Hi everyone, and welcome to this pilot episode of the Master Investors Podcast. We've got a very special guest for you today. Jim Mellon is one of the most successful private investors in the UK, and he's developed a reputation for calling really big trends that have the potential to make investors a lot of money. Most recently, he's done this with Biotech, which has had a phenomenal run over the past few years. But today we're going to find out about where Jim is looking for his next money fountain, as he likes to call them. But before we get started, please take a few moments to listen to our disclaimer. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. The information in this podcast is not a personal recommendation for any particular investment. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment, you should speak to an authorised financial advisor. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future returns. Here's the interview, and I hope you enjoy listening. Hi, and welcome to the Master Investors podcast. My name's James Faulkner. I'm the editor of Master Investor magazine, and I'm joined by none other than Jim Mellon. Hi, James. Thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure. You're well known to our audience as a very successful and experienced private investor. How did you initially get into investing? What were your first experiences and you know what, what was it that pulled you into this uh, arena? It was a job. <laughs> I was employed as a fund manager in Hong Kong when I left university. So I was there for about six months and I got sent to San Francisco. And I was working there in the early 80s during the period when um, the tech companies were really just beginning to get going. The big ones that we know today, like Apple and Microsoft, Intel and so forth. And so I was very fortunate to be given that chance at a very young age. And I worked for a company called GT Management, which is better known today as LGT, which is a very big Liechtenstein-based company. At that time, it was run by two maverick Brits called Richard Thornton and Tom Griffin. And Tom Griffin is still alive. Uh, I think he must be well into his 90s now. But uh, unfortunately, Richard uh, passed away a couple of years ago. But Richard was really the driving force, but was also a very mercurial character and uh, would ring people up at two o'clock in the morning complaining about (laughs) this or that. Had a very volatile both mood and also view of investment. So he got kicked out of GT management, literally kicked out of his own company. And I was the only person who was prepared to go with him because I was maybe 25 or 26 at the time. So I went and we set up our own company called Thornton Management. And within four years, that was sold to a big German bank. And that gave me uh, enough money to start my own company, which still persists today, called Charlemagne Capital, though it's not owned by me anymore. And uh, my colleague Jane Sutcliffe and I were emerging market fund managers for a long time. Well, I was the fund manager for quite a long time. And she ran the business and um, it was very successful. And so that's what got me into investment. It was basically a job. Mm. I did a, a degree in economics, politics and philosophy at university and uh, majoring in the economic part. And um, that was the job I got. And that's the, I was lucky to start at a time when the big bull market, which is still going on. Which today. helps. <laughs> it, it, it definitely does. <laughs> and particularly the bull market for Asian emerging markets. And then we discovered Russia in 1994. And that gave us a second great big boost. So as time went on, I decided I'd run my own money. And that's what I've been doing, really. And we have a you know wide variety of businesses, basically. So... Um, including, dare I say it, Master Investor. And early successes, because you had quite a few sort of big wins in, in the early days, Russia, German property, that kind of thing. Can you talk us through a few of those? 
Well, uh, German property has been a latter day success. I mean, uh, Russia definitely was. So we were emerging market fund managers based in Hong Kong with an office here in London. And I, because I read so much, um, I came across a snippet that basically said, oh, Russia's privatizing its uh, key industries. In fact, they were privatizing everything after Gorbachev came into power. And every adult citizen in Russia was given a certificate representing a share, effectively, of the Russian state assets, and they could sell those certificates. And so Jane and I, by a very circuitous route, going through Korea and Vladivostok and then to Moscow, ended up in Moscow with all the reserves that we had in our company, which was about $2 million US dollars. In 1994, that was quite a lot of money. And um, spent all of that on buying these certificates at a vegetable market in the middle of Moscow, buying them from old ladies, typically old ladies who came from the countryside, who wanted to get, on average, about $25 per certificate. And then we gave those certificates to what was then called Credit Suisse. And we identified stocks that we wanted to bid on. And we went for some uh, stocks that did very, very well, oil and gas stocks in particular. But we also got some that we still have to this day and are totally unsaleable. So, for instance, the Tula gun factory where Kalashnikov ended his days as the president uh, and the Russian, the Moscow GD free shops are still owned somewhere by us, but because they were controlled by what you might call mafiosi type of arrangements, <laughs> we could never exercise any ownership. But the big oil and gas companies did very well. And then uh, within a year or two, we had a couple of billion dollars invested in, in Russia on behalf of clients. And it was a very successful business until 1998 when the Russians defaulted on their domestic debt, international debt, and the ruble devalued. And uh, so having made 100 million US dollars profit for the company the year before, we lost 50 million dollars and it was very perilous in 1998, as it was for a lot of people. But we got through it and, uh, you know, today what is now called Fiera Capital is doing very well and is based here in London. I'm just interested in, in the mentality of the, the sort of gutsy move into Russia, because presumably the, the $2 million that you took over with you was quite a large proportion of your net worth at that point. And it sort of goes against the sort of, you know, the, the um, received philosophy of, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. You must have been absolutely convinced of the logic of that, that move at that time. Yeah, I was, but... Uh, of course, I was a lot younger, so you're prepared to take more risks at that stage, right? Yeah. So, um, and I felt that this was a real kickstart for our business, which it was. Um, so, just to put it in perspective, we put in two million dollars, and within a few weeks, it was worth seventeen or eighteen million, I think. And we sold that, and that formed the basis of our fund management business in in uh, Russia. But you know, I've never been frightened to take. Um, risks and some of them obviously go badly wrong but some go right and normally the ones that go right way out weigh the ones that go wrong and so you mentioned German property well 13 years ago we invested in German property I put what was then a large part of my money into German property and we have just sold a third of our portfolio where we have no debt now we had borrowed 200 million euros but we have no debt now for a very large gain because I, I saw that you know, Germany is a stable country. The price of what you were paying was below the replacement cost of just the building. Forget about the land value. And uh, vacancy rates were 25%, which meant that the, that vacancy rate could go down. Rental yields were over 10%. And although we weren't familiar with the landscape and it took some time to get to grips with it, it's been, in terms of dollar amounts, absolutely my best um, in investment. 
And uh, so, but now yields are less than 2%. And, uh, you know, there's talk of uh, nationalizing some of the rental properties uh, in Berlin in particular. And everything's just too good to be true. I thought, well, now's the time to take some money off the table, which is what we've just done. Mm. And you talk about these money fountains, as you call them. Yeah. That's kind of like your signature approach to investing, isn't it? What do we mean by a money fountain? Well, they're, they're not... <laughs> They're very difficult to find, and I, I can't say I've got any particular one. Well, it's not true. I've got a couple in mind at the moment. But um, basically, it's something where, where you uh, develop your own personal knowledge of a space. Let's give an example, biotech as an example. And um, you really get to know the space well, and maybe even a subsector of that space. And you feel confident in the people who are running the companies that you want to invest in. You put your money into those companies and then with a bit of luck, those investments will yield. It's a bit like an oil gusher. That's why I call it a money, mm-hmm. money fountain. You know, they will maybe take a bit of time to get there, but they'll yield phenomenal returns. And um, a lot of it is uh, down to experience. Uh, and I will say curiosity. You know, you have to be very curious about new developments and not necessarily just look at what's established and the status quo. And then you have to meet the right people who can you can partner with to make things happen. It's not just about the next big thing, is it? Because when people read about the, the next big thing in, you know, the newspapers or whatever, it's usually common knowledge, isn't it? And, you know, people are, have already invested in it and you've missed the boat kind of thing. It's, but for you, it's about sort of deep research, doing a lot of reading and spending a lot of time sort of un- uncovering these these hidden sort of developments in, in economics and society at large. Is that fair? In, in some ways that's fair, but I would say that, you know, quite often these trends are, are evident to anyone who reads the newspapers, but most people don't act on them. Right. And to give you uh, one example, you know that we're very keen on the clean meat revolution <clears throat> at the moment. Yeah. I hope Master Investor writes something about that. You know, this has been around for a while. It was back in six or seven years ago that the first clean meat burger, a lab-grown burger, so meat that's not grown in the traditional way, but is grown in a vat, effectively, was served here in London. It cost about $250,000 for a, for a burger. So that's been around for a while, but it's only now that people are beginning to wake up that this is a real revolution. You know, at the same time as the environmental impact of farming animals is becoming evident, and it's very, very bad for the environment. There isn't enough protein to go around because of the demands of the Chinese and Indian populations as they get richer. And you've got you know, issues with antibiotic use in animal husbandry, and you've got the, the horrible conditions in which they're kept. The confluence today is that, you know, we are going to be able to grow lab meat, and that will include fish, it will include chicken, it will include pork, beef, etc., without all the adverse uh, effects that I just mentioned earlier on. And there is some money flowing into that. One of the companies is going public now with a valuation of over a billion US dollars, and we want to be part of that. But as yet... There is nothing that's listed in that area, even though it's been around for a while. So, so for, for the private investor, the, the guy in the street, it's not a, an area easily accessible at the moment. Well, we're trying to make it accessible. Right. I think we, we've announced, uh, it's public information, that Port Heron Biotech has then become a vehicle for clean meat. It's called agronomics. And my colleague, Anthony Chow, will be running that. So I'm investing in that myself and on the same terms as all other investors. And... Uh, I have you know, very high hopes for that. But that's an example of where it's evident that something's happening. You can put the pieces together. But 
it just takes time for people to mobilize their thoughts and the fund managers to get a grip on what's going on. And so that opportunity can sometimes be a few years. So you don't need to just jump on everything that you think is an amazing idea straight away. You can wait. So that's that's actually quite encouraging then, isn't it, for, from a private investor point of view? Because, you know, if you can see these trends sort of developing in front of you and you don't necessarily have to be right in there at the beginning to, to benefit from That's it. absolutely right. I mean, uh, cannabis would be another good example. Yeah. Cannabis has been around since uh, forever, all right? <laughs> but it's only recently that it's been recognized as having some medical powers um, that are increasingly being identified and uh, exploited. Those medical powers have formed the basis now of, of uh, companies that, you know, investors can invest in. And, and while I would have thought the cannabis boom would be you know, well and truly over, it carries on. And one of the reasons is that the big tobacco companies are imperiled and the alcohol companies have also got problems. And cannabis may be the new holy grail for them. So they're buying up these cannabis-related companies. And so the thing may have legs. It may have further to go. In fact, it will have further to go, I think. so. And that's highly accessible to individuals yeah. through ETFs or through uh, the companies that are traded, particularly in Canada, but now mm-hmm. some are being listed in the UK. So it's a trend that's been going on for a while. You might have said the same thing about the internet. You know, well, okay, the year 1998, it was all over because the internet had been discovered. There were lots of companies being created around the internet and it was only available to institutional investors. Well, it's not the case if you invested in Google, even Microsoft, which is a big internet beneficiary. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd have done unbelievably well. Amazon's another example of that. So, you know, Amazon, I remember having a bet with someone who told me that he never thought that the market capitalization of Amazon would go over $5 billion US dollars. <laughs> was it now about a trillion, trillion dollars? It's, well, it was. I think it's come <laughs> off a bit. But just catch a wave, hold on to the good companies, and uh, and then the money mountains will, money fountains will uh, not money mountains, money fountains will flow, and so you don't have to be the first person to identify a trend. You just mm-hmm. have to just know your stuff and invest carefully. Is there a risk with these money fountains, as we call them? Look, looking back at the internet, for example, um, the people who got in early there did very well, but then we had a bubble and things didn't turn out too well for the people who got in quite late. Are there any, any areas at the moment where we could be in that situation, thinking particularly about biotech, because biotech's done really well over the past few years. That's been an area w- what you've been quite big on. It's true that some sectors of biotech have done particularly well, but I wouldn't say that biotech overall is overpriced by any means. Mm. I mean, you know, the big pharma companies and biotech companies in the US and the UK are selling it between 10 and 15 mm. times earnings. Some of them got dividend yields, uh, well-developed businesses. What we're seeing there, however, is pressure on their pricing, particularly from the US government. And for different reasons, there may be individual biotech stocks that are uh, sells, and there may be some that are buys, but I wouldn't say the sector as a whole has outrun its use, because obviously the world is aging. I mean, 20 years ago, the average age of the British population was around 27, and today it's around 37. That just gives an example of how it's rapidly aging. And that is replicated more or less everywhere around the world. So. The capacity to uh, of the biotech industry has hardly been exploited yet. It's going to be very, very big. Um, and it already is big, but it will be much, much bigger. And the ability of the industry to cure diseases such as cancer or hepatitis C, uh, osteoarthritis, and all these sort of diseases of aging is getting much, much better. And such that cancer, for instance, I think will be a curable or chronic condition within 10 years. 
So, you know, it has infinite uh, possibilities. In terms of where there might be a bubble emerging, I talked at the Master Investor Show about the mobility revolution. So the Ubers, the Lyfts, the Lime, the Bird, you know, the electric vehicles. Tesla is another example of that. And I think that that area is one that, where there are relatively low barriers to entry, apart from capital, and where the businesses continue to make, you know, huge losses. I mean, look at Tesla, for instance, the other day. Uh, the capacity of some of those to go bankrupt is very high and the valuations are far too high. Another one would be, I saw today that WeWork is planning to go public. You know, the company that rents office space long-term and then mm. divides it up and sort of makes it trendy. That is basically just a, a puffed-up version of IWG, the what used to be called Regis here in the UK. And again, I think that represents a far too high evaluation on something that's a fairly obvious thing to do, very capital intensive and probably going to lose money for years to come. And what about valuations in general? Because we're, we're pretty much a decade into the bull market now. You know, We must be due a bear market at some point. What are your thoughts on that at the moment? I think that uh, we're very close to a big uh, fall in markets. You know, There's a lot of talk at the moment of melt-ups in markets. Like there's going to be some final flurry upwards and everyone's going to be hysterically going into stocks. Well, I think that that's uh, unlikely and that while valuations don't look ridiculously overstretched, they could be ridiculously overstretched if we have a recession. And the capacity for central banks and governments to avert recession by money printing and by all the things that they've done in the last 10 years gets less and less and less because the potency of each of those measures uh, reduces with every use of it. We have seen a massive expansion in central bank balance sheets. Some of them were looking like they were going to normalise to a certain extent, the Fed and the Bank of England, but they ran scared. And so once again, the printing presses are running. But I would say that investors should be very cautious over the next few months. There could be there could be quite a big fall coming. Then they'll really run the printing presses hot. And maybe at that time you have another look and see if you want to participate. Mm-hmm. That's why I believe that it's important. And, and just put valuations in context, if earnings fall, then valuations become very expensive. Yeah. So there is a capacity for earnings to fall. A lot of the earnings growth in the United States in particular has come through stock buybacks, which have been financed by debt. And uh, although people think that US companies are full of money, they're not uh, highly stretched. The junk bond market is extremely perilous, if you ask me. So we, we're not looking at 2008 or a crash like that, but we could be looking at a good 30 or 40% fall sometime this year. So just be careful. That's why I'm focusing on two areas. One is longevity and the other one is the clean meat space because I think those two are going to be macro trends that will persist whatever the economic landscape is. If we do get a recession, what's going to happen given that central banks and governments are so ill-prepared because we've you know, we've got zero interest rates pretty much, quantitative easings being used en masse and governments are so heavily indebted? What's the medicine available to, to governments in that scenario? Well... All economic history has been punctuated by periods of recession, some of them very deep. I think it's just something that is part of the natural cycle. So governments may try and stop recessions from happening, but they can't in reality. Mm. And uh, we've actually had a recession, really, in the UK over the last 10 years, and, and indeed in the United States. And that recession has taken has been in the form of a distribution of wealth that has become very unequal. 
So although the populists at the moment, and by then I mean the socialist populists in the United States and here in the UK would advocate that we should just print as much money as doesn't cause inflation. And by the way, printing money always causes inflation eventually. The fact of that printing means that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And that's mm-hmm. what we've seen in the UK and the United States. Because States. the rich hold the real assets, poor rely on Precisely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. And um, so, you know, even though it seems like the populist cry is just carry on printing, spend more money at the government level, it actually has the opposite effect of what mm-hmm. the one that they, they desire. So what we do have at the moment are a lot of companies that are dissustained by like zombies by money printing and I do think we need some normalization and if not we'll end up in a Japanese situation which is years and years and years and years and years decades in fact of very low real growth and you know an aging society at the same time so I think that the best thing is a short sharp recession probably accompanied by a stock market decline as well. And I can remember when I started all those years ago in the United States that the Dow Jones average, having been a thousand or just around a thousand in the 1960s and the 1980s was still at that level, had just got back to that level. And here we are today, well over 20,000. So why couldn't it go back to 10,000? What about gold? Because you're quite bullish on gold, aren't you, as, as a form of portfolio insurance at the moment? Obviously, I'm guessing if we if we get a, a good dose of inflation, gold's going to do well. Yes, I mean it seems that gold does well in a deflationary bust as well. So something that we might envisage, for instance, in the late summer, that gold uh, becomes the safe haven. I mean, the, the gold is competing now with cryptocurrencies, so it's not necessarily an undiluted form of insurance. And it does seem to me that we might be on the verge of another uplift in cryptocurrencies, which is just another form of uh, financial speculation, right? So mm-hmm. it doesn't really have any utility. But you actually believe in the blockchain as a as a technology, don't you? Well, sort of. I mean, I I, I wouldn't. I don't regard that as a money fountain for myself. Right. Um, but obviously, it's got some validity, distributed ledger, and you know, particularly in areas like real estate, which are you know uh, are not very efficient. But if I had to bet, I would say that gold's getting itself ready for a run to over $2,000 an ounce. And even if I'm wrong, it is absolutely the case that over 10, 20, 30, 40 years, gold is the one thing that maintains its value in, in an era of rising prices. And you know, if you own gold, physical ETFs, futures or something, you will generally protect your capital from being eroded by inflation. So I think now is the time to have a good position. What about gold's uh, poorer cousin, silver, as a, as a kind of leverage play on, on that? Yeah, well, it's got industrial, more, more industrial applications, obviously silver. And the ratio, as I understand it, of gold to silver at the moment is the highest ever in terms of you know, the price-on-price ratio. I have a friend who's very, very bullish on silver. He's a good investor. And you know, so you can have both, really. I, 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 and you could have other precious metals as well if you wanted to. Um, but gold is the obvious thing that the central banks buy and uh, that, uh, you know, people hoard. And uh, we could be in for a period of gold hoarding mm. coming up, basically. Just to conclude then, Jim, can you distill the ingredients of your success as an investor? Well, first of all, I would say that I could have been a much more successful investor. <laughs> if, I, if I'd known what I know now, <clears throat> 20 or 30 years ago, and if I'd stuck to you know, one or two things rather than spreading my energies uh, 
across multiple sectors. I would say that the most important thing is I get back to the point I made, curiosity, which involves lots of reading. Uh, it's not there's, there's no national lottery here, right? So you have to really work at it. The second thing is adaptability. And, you know, there are many people I know who've invested in something that looks really safe. BP, before the deep water crisis, mm-hmm. would be a good example of that, who've had things blow up in their faces because they haven't realized that things are changing. I would say that as an example today, and I've used this before, that people who are foolish enough to go and learn how to be a London black cabbie are doing so just before all cabbies are redundant, right? So why do they never read the papers? They don't know anything about autonomous vehicles. I mean, does their mother not tell them that they're going into the wrong thing? Um, so the, the advice there is invest in yourself before you invest in anything else. No, it's not really. I'd say, I'd say my, my advice is just to be adaptable, to look yeah. at what's going on in the world. We live in a very fast-changing world. And, um, you know, just look at the implications of what technological change could mean. And uh, it's all down to technology, really. By technology, I mean medical technology as well as just the tech that Mm. we're using, for instance, recording this program at the moment. And then the last thing is what I call application, which is that there is no easy lunch. You have to work at it. You know, you have to build your network of contacts, people that you trust. I mentioned reading earlier on, but it's more than just that. It's also being uh, well-versed in what a company's balance sheet is about, what to look for, even the greatest investors. And I would say that Luke Johnson was in the past regarded as a great investor and opinion maker here in the UK, can be undone by something that they haven't seen. And in his case, he presumably wasn't watching the bank balances of um, Patisserie Valerie. Mm. But look what happened there. So in, in, in just a matter of months it all went wrong. Mm. And what I would have said there is that the rest of the high street was having a lot of trouble. His margins were twice as high as anyone else's margins. He kept on growing at 10 to 15% a year, year in, year out. That in itself is a warning signal that something wrong because selling cakes and coffee Mm. in one shop as opposed to another shop is not that different. If something looks too good to be true, it often is. A hundred percent. And that's what happened with Madoff. You know, every single year he produced a 10.1% return as it happened to his investors. So how can it just be so consistent? How can it have no volatility? How can it be so good? So you just have to be aware of the capacity for things to go wrong, and, and often they do. So at the moment, I would say that, you know, you mentioned gold, James. I think that's absolutely right. But I think short-term cash, government bonds, very, very short-term T-bills um, is not a bad place to be. And if I had to bet on a currency or currencies, I would say that the best ones to hold at the moment are the British pound mm-hmm. and the Japanese yen. I think the US dollar is too high and the US is developing huge imbalances in its trade and also in its budget deficit. Uh, the UK doesn't look too bad to me and um, the Japanese currency is significantly undervalued. So those two, you can hold them and then go around and look for your own money fountain. I've identified mine and uh, I think we'll all live much longer and I think we'll be eating non-slaughtered meat in the relatively <laughs> near future. So that's, that's my words of advice. Okay, so get looking for those money fountains. Jim Mellon, thank you very much. Thank you very much, James. Don't forget, you can access more great content, including Master Investor magazine at masterinvestor.co.uk. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us by hitting the subscribe button and by leaving a review. If you've got any suggestions about who you'd like us to interview or topics you'd like us to cover, 
please send us an email at info at masterinvestor.co.uk. Thanks for listening.